This is Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a series-based podcast focusing on surgical and medical education and featuring expert interviews and practice-changing discussion. Our host is Dr. Kara King, a member of the Cleveland Clinic's section of minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. Dr. King is also the director of benign gynecologic surgery and associate program director of the Cleveland Clinic's MIGS Fellowship. This podcast is a collaboration between MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons. We'll be right back after this message. This podcast is made possible by Boston Scientific. To learn more about Boston Scientific, please visit bostonscientific.com. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the featured clinicians and do not necessarily reflect the views of Boston Scientific. So I am really excited to be back in Dr. Barry Ridgway's office. We had Dr. Ridgway on our show about two months ago where she introduced what we were doing at Cleveland Clinic during this COVID pandemic. And it's hard to believe that it's been almost two months since I was here. I can't believe it myself. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. You know, it's been two months and it's, it kind of feels like 10 years and one day all at the same time. It absolutely does. I, I'm amazed at how far we've come though. And one thing that I want to bring up, Dr. Ridgeway, that is different from the last time that I saw you is you're the Associate Chief of Staff. <laughs> That's true. That is different. Like, <laughs> I am like all of a sudden more nervous about sitting here for your interview. Oh, you should be. You definitely should be. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, congratulations. That is just an incredible and very well-deserved promotion. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm excited for the, the opportunities. Absolutely. Okay, so let's get to this. So... You know, a lot has changed in two months, and I was hoping that you could just start out by telling us about some of the changes in clinical activity that we have experienced at Cleveland Clinic over the past two months. Great. It, a lot has changed, and when we spoke last time, we talked about reducing our services and how we were doing that thoughtfully, things we were doing to protect ourselves. And fortunately, here in Ohio, we have not seen the surge that we anticipated our governor and our, the Ohio Department of Health was very proactive about closing schools, stay-at-home orders, closing bars and restaurants and other things. And with that, we've not seen a significant surge compared to other places in the country. So after following that for a number of weeks, we were allowed to reactivate services. During that downtime, our same group that wound all the surgical services and clinical activities down were working on reactivation plans because we knew eventually we would reactivate, whether that is months away or it was weeks away. So we were closely following what guidelines from, of course, CDCR and then also our state. And on April 30th, they announced that effective May 1st, we could reactivate. And because we had plans in the works, we were able to do so. It is interesting because you think of winding things down, which happened over a couple days, and people assume like, oh, well, we'll just turn things back on. <laughs> and it obviously doesn't work that way. And in addition, COVID's not gone. We're still here, we're living with it, we're dealing with it. We still have people who are here in the unit on ECMO, we still have people who are sick. We still have caregivers who are testing positive, usually a, a couple every day. 
among many, many people, 60,000, but nonetheless, it still is here. And so how we have reactivated has respected that. And it also has been a reactivation in a way that we can prevent any future surges. And I know you and your team have put in tremendous work at this reactivation. I didn't really think about it, how we were told May 30th, and we had like 12 hours, yep, you're good to go, go Mm -hmm. ahead and start. And I'll tell you this, you made it look so easy. Like the way it felt (laughs) was like, okay, we're restarting. Everything just felt very seamless. But I know when I come into work in the morning, your car is here. And I know that when I leave, (laughs) your car is still here. So I understand that this has not been easy at all. No, it's interesting because we had had several versions of plans based on our relationship with the government. We thought, oh, the reactivation orders will say X, Y, and Z. And so we had a plan for that X, Y, and Z. And then a week later they said, oh, it's going to be actually A, B, and C. (laughs) So we had a number of different plans, which actually in the end paid off because it was a combination of everything. And so we said, okay, let's piecemeal this together really quickly. And then we were able to do that. So it worked out pretty well. And to remind everyone, when we closed down, we closed all of our ambulatory surgery centers. We only kept our main campus and three hospital hubs opened. The other six hospitals had very limited services, so one team per day for emergencies and other things. And we built a Hope Hospital in case we had that surge. And in doing so, we took equipment, monitors, Pixis machines from those ASCs for our Hope Hospital. So in moving everything back, as well as really implementing guidance for physical distancing, how people come into the building, can they have visitors, and just making sure that the patients remain safe and the caregivers remain safe was the focus, but it required a ton of work by a very large team. And I don't want to downplay that Hope Hospital. I mean, that was legitly a hospital. How many beds did that have? It could have had up to a thousand, and it's a newer building on our campus that is designed for health education. It's very large, it has a huge atrium, and they had to move all the furniture out, order all the supplies, including beds and everything else. They had emergency plans. They had the entire area wired, uh, not wired's not the right word, piped, I guess, for Mm -hmm. oxygen. It's amazing. Fortunately, we did not have to use it at least so far, and it still is actually sitting there ready to go. My guess is there'll be some discussion in the next few weeks, assuming our numbers stay where they are with the relaxation of the governor's orders, that it will be dismantled to some degree. You know, I know our goal has always been to be overprepared, and I am just so proud at the mobilization of all the teams that happened. So thank you again for your leadership in making all of that happen. That's just incredible. One of the things is in doing this, you realize the amazing talent among your peers, and I'm sure that happens in every place, but here it was was palpable and so exciting and inspiring. Yes, I absolutely agree. So I want to talk about some of these strategies that we have used to reactivate appropriately. I know a lot of other institutions have been coming to us asking how we're unrolling this next phase. So can you speak to how we are resuming care here, like the actual action items that we're doing to resume care here? 
Sure. So we as a group came together and came up with essentially mission and goals that we want to keep our patients safe, we want to keep our caregivers safe, and we want to conserve PPE. And there have been many, many difficult decisions that we've had to make along this road, but we've always been able to go back to those three things and say, is this meeting and fulfilling our goals in this reactivation process? And it really helped guide us as we made these decisions. So from the physical space, we've had people go in and do walkthroughs, signage, safety checks, because these are essentially large ambulatory surgery centers that were shuttered for months. Inspections, supplies going through, making sure we get rid of expired supplies, all of those things that typically we do on a day-to-day basis but had not been done for a few months. So sweeping the entire area for all of those things. Also implementing any changes that are necessary in the physical space or infrastructure to make sure that we could provide that safe care. And that happened also in the ambulatory centers where patients come in for visits because we had to reconfigure waiting rooms, we had to do space studies, we had design teams involved. It's quite extensive. For surgery, we landed on preoperative COVID testing for all patients within 72 hours of surgery so that those patients are tested and then come to surgery with a negative test. We have put a ton of time into decision trees and how that actually is operationalized. Sounds so simple, (laughs) like let's just do this. But then when you come into, well, what if you have a test that's greater than 72 hours? What's our mission for this, that sort of thing. So we put together all of that, which I found really interesting process to go through with other surgeons and talk about this. And we had nursing involved, infectious disease, really a team of people making sure that we were, again, aligning with our goals of keeping the patient safe, caregiver safe, and conserving PPE. And so a whole process has been set up with that. And we're a very large surgical center, and we're including some procedures as well in that. So our capacity right now is close to 1,200 swabs a day, and we have the ability to increase to 2,000 a day by the end of this month. Wow. So these are taking express cares or urgent cares, closing them down and creating a swab center. And then we also have centers that are drive-through centers, so you don't get out of your car, but you just drive through and you get a swab. And I think that is just incredibly important for safety of the entire OR team. And I'm so thankful that we've made that a priority. I know one of the big fears that I had resuming surgical care was, were we gonna have the resources to test everybody? And if we don't, what does that mean for my PPE? And then it comes into play, do we have enough of that PPE? So this has relieved so much stress, I know from the anesthesiologists, to the staff, to the residents and fellows and medical students. So this is, a, I think, a really important priority that we made in our, in our pre-op workflow. I agree. I think it's really helped us conserve PPE. And in this conservation principle, we've said it's test or PPE. You pick one. (laughs) And for most everyone, we're picking test other than urgent cases or emergent cases. So it's been important for us and it's been implemented. And when we started this and we, again, we found out on April 30th, that was a Friday, we opened the ambulatory site on Monday. (laughs) So a lot of things then that weekend 
the swabbing and everything else. And I thought, oh my gosh, this first week, we're going to have about a 50% swab rate. But actually, we had almost complete swab rate. I couldn't believe it. Wow. I kept waiting. Is it, how many calls am I going right, to get? Right. <laughs> and we and then it didn't happen. And I was like, gosh, maybe they didn't report it to me or <laughs> is my phone working? But actually, right. there were very few issues even right off the beginning. And we continue to follow those quality metrics to make sure that the testing process is sound. And when we started this, we didn't know because the data that were available at that time showed some areas with a 20% positive asymptomatic rate. Mm. And so we thought, gosh, is this going to be canceling cases? How do we manage that? And now, you know, we're a month, seven weeks in or something, and we know over thousands of tests, our asymptomatic positive rate is about 0.5%. Wow. So these are patients without COVID symptoms who have a swab for a screening purpose. The unexpected positive is 0.5%. And when you really interview those individuals and say, you know, did you in the last couple of weeks have a cough or not feel great? About half of those people have that. And they yeah. say, oh, but it was so mild or I just yeah. felt off or it lasted for a day and then it went away or I thought I might have had a fever, but I didn't take my temperature. Right. And so really we're catching a very small percentage of people, but that reflects the lower prevalence where we live. That's so reassuring. I'm glad to hear that. And I know when you gave our Women's Health Institute update this week, you mentioned that 50% of our canceled procedures have been rescheduled, which is great, Mm -hmm. and that 75% of our OR volume has been resumed. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely going in the right trajectory. And I agree. Me personally, I'm really busy and I have not had one positive COVID. So Mm -hmm. that just speaks to your less than 1% risk of having asymptomatic. It fortunately is how things are currently. And we are continuing to monitor this, but we've been able to resume care. And now, you know, beginning of June, every single place and every single service line has been reactivated. We did a tiered approach where bringing the ASCs on, we brought on three per week. took about three weeks to get everything up and going. But also during that time, you know, you had to scramble to get things scheduled and get patients in who needed, you know, prior auths in addition to preoperative testing, consents, all of those things. And so it actually worked out okay. Our main goal was safety. And sure, we could have brought everything and just turned it on, but it would have been mayhem. And we said at the end of the day, we do not want people to be harmed we're about 80, 85% pre-COVID right now. That's wonderful. And then in regard to how we tier surgeries, I know the MIG section here worked on a tiering system about the beginning of this, probably seven, eight Mm -hmm. weeks ago, I guess, and how we've reactivated our patients. And that got vetted through the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons and then got backed by a lot of the surgical society. So I know that's out there as well and how we tiered our surgeries as well. We don't know really what is going to be happening in the next few months, and especially in the fall, when typically respiratory viruses increase because we're in more, and also there'll be a new flu. So it's important, and with a tiered approach in reactivation, we can also do a tiered approach in a wind down instead of a shutdown like we initially did. And so for other places who have this sort of tiered idea, I think it's great because you can prioritize which care has to happen so that we don't shut everything down. That's something we've also learned from this in that people have really changed their healthcare seeking behaviors. 
whereas before our and our fear actually was that our EDs were going to be full and right. you like couldn't come in and <laughs> right. but actually we saw massive decreases in the emergency care that we've provided and when you look at specific diagnoses heart attack stroke things that are acute right <laughs> there's about a 33% decrease in those diagnoses and that's been seen in other systems as well which scares us to death in that this deferral of care is going to have significant consequences. Mm -hmm. So our goal as an organization is if COVID numbers were to spike significantly and we were going to need to change our care to more COVID care, that we would dial back instead of shutting off. That's a really good point in that a 30, almost a 35% reduction in MIs and strokes presenting, we have not gotten healthier. That is not why they're not coming in. <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> Seriously, I am right there with you. So that's scary that people just aren't coming in. And you're right, they're not getting their diagnostic care. They're not getting their mammograms and their screening colonoscopies. And this is going to have serious ramifications down the road. And I love that idea of winding down versus just shutting down. And with all my surgical booking requests, you're exactly right. Even though we're not really in a state where I only can do my top tiers, I've been putting what tier those patients are when I book them. So in the event, in the future, if we do have to wind down, I don't have to go back and review all my charts. I know where they fall in that tier. Granted, people can shift, but that's helpful to be thinking ahead about a possible uptick this fall. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about how we are resuming care in the clinic, meaning what kind of workflow do we have in the clinic and what's our ratio of in-person to virtual and what are our goals there? Yeah, it's a great question. And I hate to use the term silver lining in a pandemic, but one thing that we've learned and adopted has been our use of virtual visits, telehealth, distance health, however we want to call it, and that this has been a goal of the clinic for some time, and many people were resistant to it. And this really forced the issue so that people who didn't even have an iPhone, let's say, or you said, I'm not gonna do this, they, they did it, they did it. <laughs> and we're focusing on trying to best understand the virtual care that we provide. During COVID time, we probably went a little too far that's, of course, doing the best that we could and still at least interviewing patients, getting that information when we could not bring them back. But I know that the amount of care we provided virtually then was probably too much. Pre-COVID was far too low. And then where should we end up? So I asked each service line to really talk amongst themselves, really think through what proportion of their care should be virtual. So for example, for OB, a typical OB bundle is about 12 visits. Easily three or four of those can be done virtually in that we provide a blood pressure cuff, a fetal Doppler, and then patients have a scale at home. And so they're able to stay at home for those visits. And we'd have this program pre-COVID, but then we, once COVID hit, we said, guess what? You're enrolled. Exactly. <laughs> Congratulations. Great news. You're enrolled. Make it a positive. Yep. Yeah. And so we should continue to do that. And patients uniformly enjoy that. It's convenient for them. And we also know that as our economy perhaps has a downshift or will be having one, we need to meet patients where they are, whether it's at their home, whether it's evening or weekends, whether it's early morning, whether it's virtually, and really trying to help them gain care so that we don't have those consequences of deferred care. 
And so we sort of landed individually among ratios. When we group it all together based on our volume for OBGYN, Women's Health Institute, all of our service lines were about 86% in person and 14% distance health, which I think we're pretty good with that. We'll have to see what happens. I think some areas will be able to expand more than what we settled on. And others, it's hard. You know, I'm a Eurogyne. It's really hard to do distance health, partly the population, but partly the problems in how we are making our diagnoses. So for overactive bladder, pre and post-ops, it's usually pretty good. For the other stuff, it's pretty hard. Yeah, you're exactly right. And this has really pushed us to see how much we can do virtually. And in the past, I did my pre-ops, some of my posts, and then image reviews I thought were easy. But then during the pandemic, I started doing all my news because no one could come in. And I'm finding that some new visits are actually okay for us, meaning fibroids for myomectomy. If I have their MRI, I can really help you know create a surgical plan. So I agree, it's pushed us a little bit. But I imagine we'll probably fall about 75% in person when this all kind of shakes out. But it's been enlightening to see how far we can kind of push that envelope. Right, right. And I think in, I've sort of worked with the other institutes on how they get their goals. And I, I think at the end of the day, we need to think about what medically makes sense and how we can meet the patient's needs, not what we're used to or what we're comfortable with, but really what medically makes sense and aim towards that. At the same time, making it better for our providers, because I always talk to our distance health group and say, you have to remember that your customer yeah. is technically the doctor. It's not yeah. the patient. And the reason is, is that the doctor doesn't agree to do virtual visits. The patient will have zero probability of getting it. My head wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I didn't think you were going to say that. <laughs> but that makes complete sense. You're right. It's the limiting factor, really. You're exactly right. Yeah. And so if the doctor says, I hate this, I'm not going to do it, the patient has zero probability of getting it. If the doctor adopts it and likes it and is medic- using it medically appropriate, the patient has a chance if he or she wants that type of care to engage in that type of care, which, of course, then their platform, their ease of use, that all comes into play. But those secondary things, in my mind, don't matter as much as the usability and the adoption by the provider. And so we've worked with coming up with some different models and other things that we're trialing. One of them is that when you are seeing a patient uh, over a virtual visit, you are checking the history yourself, you're entering the medicines, a lot of that documentation that we are fortunate enough not to have to do. And so there should also be MAs and nurses who can help with that. And perhaps they cover a number of providers and do this from home or at a different time. So that when you go into your virtual visit, you're essentially ready to ask the information that you need to ask as you would in the office and not be burdened with a lot of those other things. And as well as the post-visit plan, which can be imaging appointments with a consultant, labs, et cetera, that as normal, you'd probably put the orders in, but then someone on the back end can help that patient schedule and make sure they're all settled. So you're not saying like, well, give so-and-so a call and good luck. Fingers <laughs> yeah. crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> exactly. And I, I love that about Cleveland Clinic in that, you know, during this whole world pause, look at your practice with a new lens, see what feels good, see what doesn't feel as good where are your pain points and then let's recreate a model that works for the patient and for you and I think giving us the control and autonomy to help fix these things 
I think it really combats burnout, right? I think one thing that can exhaust physicians in general is when you don't have autonomy to actually try to fix some of the problems. So I really love how you let us really, you know, we're included in the plan. You know, we had a questionnaire go out this week saying, you know, what are your priorities in regard to how can we be innovative with our clinic? You know, would you rather do weekend clinics or evening or early morning or different OR times? And having a say in that, I think, is a really big deal uh, in an organization to have buy-in. I think it's hard and change is hard, and I, I fully get that. And we have to be available to the patients, which means non-traditional hours. But there's such an opportunity in these changes. So you may say, it's not my first choice to maybe work a night, but let me think about this. If I decide to work an 11, and I'm gonna just make this up here, 11 to seven on a Thursday, that means that I'm still seeing the patients, I have extended hours some, and you know what? I can sleep in that day, I can be with my kids, I can take them to school. If that happens, I can volunteer <laughs> right. in their school. If that happens, no. <laughs> right, exactly. There's I can so make my yoga unknowns, class. But or like I can have a workout with a trainer that day, or I can make all my medical appointments, or I can help my mother that day, or they're really the things that are pain points in our life now, like if an alternative schedule can solve some of those, and I think people have to try to just re-envision instead of thinking like, oh, now I have to work evenings and weekends, or this is, a, you know. Exactly. No, I, I absolutely agree. You're like, oh, wait, but if I work Wednesday night, then maybe I can exactly get Monday morning off. Hmm. Yeah. That may not be so bad. That may not be so bad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. We'll be right back after this message. Today's episode is brought to you by MedJobNetwork.com. Ready to start your career in your dream location? Looking to expand your skills in a dynamic new practice setting? Start your search today at MedJobNetwork.com. MedJobNetwork.com sorts thousands of physician job opportunities in every specialty and all 50 states. Visit us once, create a profile, then let our technology bring the right jobs to you. There's no need to search again and again. MedJobNetwork.com does all the work for you. It's time to take that next step. There's a great new career opportunity waiting for you at MedJobNetwork.com. Can you speak at all about the reimbursement for these virtual you know, telehealth visits? Mm-hmm. Yes, so it appears to be a little less than in person. When COVID hit, we allowed and deferred all costs to the patient of any virtual visit, and that's from March until, and it's gonna end on July 1st. For COVID care, we are continuing to do virtual visits with no patient responsibility, meaning that we all charge the insurance. If the insurance doesn't pay, we take it as charity care. For regular care, we're now going to be charging, and if and we will not take charity care for the proportion. More and more insurers are covering, so I find that very, very refreshing. We're working with our government relation folks to continue to work with the government to really encourage distance health by maintaining some of the relaxation of regulations that, that they made um, for COVID. And when we've looked, and it's hard because even though it's been now weeks, we actually have very little data because the billing and the Mm -hmm. revenue cycle lags so significantly. But from what we can tell, there is decreased reimbursement, but not significantly so. 
We have taken this stance, though, from the enterprise-wide that if this is the best thing for the patient, we need to do it, and we need to figure out a way around it. We can't say, hey, let's go back to the old ways just because in the short term mm-hmm. we think that reimbursement is a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And long term, this will allow us to transition to a number of things. Perhaps we need less, fewer leases or less real estate or um, a different work model that works for everyone. So we think it's the right thing to do. So we're pushing forward. You know, as long as you keep patience as your true north, everything else will fall mm-hmm. in line. You're Absolutely. exactly right. Just keep, keep them at the heart and everything else will fall into line. Mm-hmm. So in regard to our surgical workflow, and I will say our workflow algorithm is really beautifully done, and I have permission to post that right on my, on my show notes. Okay, great. So Just make sure you look at the most recent because it is a live document, and we do yeah. update it regularly, and an update is coming up. But yes, please share, and if it can help others, that would be fantastic. Okay, great. So I'll get that up on our show notes. But can you speak a bit about our current visitation policy for surgical patients? Mm-hmm. So visitation is very tricky. On one hand, we want the best patient experience, and for some people that involves including a loved one and then how they receive their care. On the other hand, we are confident that reducing the number of people here really is one of the best ways to have physical distancing and a way to prevent infection. So it's a work in progress. Initially, we said zero visitors zero visitors for ambulatory unless you needed assistance like someone to push the wheelchair, zero for surgery, and in the ED, zero visitors. And we also have realized that there are some people not coming to get care because they can't have their loved one here or individuals who providing care for them is very difficult without a loved one here. So we have started to slowly relax our policy And the first bit was that for patients who are having inpatient surgery, they could have someone day of surgery and post-op day one. We have always allowed one support person on labor and delivery, and that's continuing, and then with pediatrics, one. We are now talking about relaxing it even further, and that involves allowing a visitor for the ambulatory visits, a visitor for ICU, and a visitor for other inpatient stays. And these are guidelines and they've been gray the whole time because you cannot write a policy that will address every clinical situation. No. It's super tricky Mm -hmm. and everything is nuanced. So we are moving towards that. The issue with the ambulatory space is that if you are doubling the capacity, it will have some stress with the physical distancing that we've been planning and we don't want to decrease access and say fewer patients because we want to accommodate visitors so it's actually a call that we're having today and how do we accommodate this and how do we message it because it won't be the same for every site unfortunately so it'll be interesting to see and I personally have mixed feelings myself obviously I agree that people should come in have their loved ones here if they need them But I also say, gosh, there's very few things we can control about the environment, and this is one of them. So I think we all have our own personal feelings and conflicts. I do think we're doing the right thing, but we still have to make sure we can practice the bundle that we're talking about with masking, with physical distancing, hand washing, et cetera. 
Yeah, I think that was perfectly put in that you have mixed feelings about it. I mean, we all value having someone that you care about come with you in this time of stress such as surgery, but then you think about it, right? We have something like 120 ORs or something mm -hmm. like that. And so if you have 120 patients, they're all bringing in one extra person. I mean, that's hundreds of extra people who you have no control over their distancing or they haven't been COVID tested and all those things. And it has felt safer with less people, I would say, mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, yep. right? Yep. But at the same time, we value having support. So. So I'm glad that you are beating that mission and I don't have to make that decision. Yeah, I, <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> I don't have the right answer, that's yeah. for sure. You know, and at our ambulatory surgery centers specifically, the waiting rooms tend to be a little smaller because those are shorter cases and you turn people in and out, but they usually would be packed because right. the volume of cases that are going there. Well, with the reconfigurations of the waiting room, you can't have people waiting there. And so we will bring visitors back in to receive the post-op instructions, but to have a whole group of people waiting there, it just doesn't make sense. Now, for people who have transportation difficulties or other things, we will have space for them. Of course, yeah. But if you live, you know, 10 or 15 minutes away, then you'll have to either go run an errand or go home and come back, and we're all in it together. And I think the great majority of the patients and their families do understand and it's hard though, because you may logically be able to accept something, but how you feel may be different. So true. And I think once you explain it to them, just the way you did, and that if you bring one person and then the 10 other people in your, your pack, you have one extra person, like that's a lot of extra people. And then it helps them understand why we're making these type of regulations mm -hmm. right now. And when we did a survey in the midst of COVID of the patient's feelings about this, a lot of them were happy that yeah. we restricted visitors and guests because they said, well, that means fewer people potentially infecting me. Yes. But, you know, it's hard to say, I want this for everyone else, but I want something else me. for myself. <laughs> I need my husband there. What do you mean right. I can't bring my husband? Yeah, exactly. Right. It feels different when you're that person. Yep. Yep. One day at a time. One, One day, day at a time. time. All right. My last question for you is about mm -hmm. antibody testing, just because we've been getting this question a lot lately. So currently at the Cleveland Clinic, are we offering antibody testing for COVID? We are not offering antibody testing for COVID. And I know that this is different than many places. And our infectious disease experts have really thought carefully about this. And interestingly, we've never, from an ID perspective, looked at antibody testing for respiratory viruses. And so we don't have a good history and understanding how this works. Also, coronavirus itself is extremely common and it appears, based on the work that they've done here, that the test itself is not specific, as well as like with influenza, it's potentially a rapidly mutating virus. And so looking for one antibody may not confer immunity for a slightly mutated strain. So it wouldn't change our management in regard to the result? Correct. And so we're not doing it at all. Yeah. And it, I think the FDA is coming out a little more recently with con similar concerns. And at the end of the day, I think we're all just trying our best and we need more information. Back to one day at a time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's all we can do. That's right. We just try our best on a daily basis and that, that'll work out okay. That's right. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Ridgeway, for your time this morning. You are a very busy woman, and <laughs> I am just I'm honored that you uh, gave us your time today. So thanks so much for your expertise, and thanks for, for leading us. It's um, I just love having you as our leader. Thank oh, you. Oh, gosh, thank you. Well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed this so much. Absolutely. And that's all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.